Hello, I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. Canada's national defense regime has long been bound up with the United States and our allies. For years, along with our partner states, we have been under various challenges from the Cold War to terrorism and beyond. Most recently, threats from Russia and China have become particularly significant, while questions surround the future of American hegemony and the NATO alliance. That leaves us to ask, can Canada defend itself against foreign threats? Today, we discuss the present and future of Canadian national defense. I'm joined by Richard Fadden, a retired civil servant who held a number of distinguished positions in the federal government, including Deputy Minister of Citizenship and Immigration, Deputy Minister of National Defense, Director of the Canadian Intelligence Security Service, and National Security Advisor to the Prime Minister of Canada. Now, let's start with the nuts and bolts. How do you develop a defense policy? I think that's one of the most fundamental questions you can ask, and I think you have to start by taking two or three things into account. One, uh, you cannot have a defense policy in isolation. You have to consider foreign policy, security policy, and to a considerable degree, economic policy. Secondly, you have to take into account the world environment. It doesn't do you much good to develop a defense policy if you don't have a picture uh, of uh, the world and what you're trying to defend against. And I guess thirdly, you have to take into account geography. You probably know that there's a line of thinking that geography determines policy more than anything else. I'm not sure I agree with that, but the fact that we're next door to the United States is not something that defense policy can agree any more than we can ignore the fact that our neighbor on the other side is is Russia. And I guess fourthly, and policy purists won't agree with me on this, but I do think you have to take into account to some degree the resources that you have available. Mm. I mean, policy purists will argue you develop the policy and then you sort of box it in depending upon the resources that you have. But I think you have to have it in the back of your mind, if only to be able to say to yourself in Canada's context, we cannot afford two nuclear aircraft carriers or we cannot afford six submarines. I mean, it's something you need to take into account. So you put all that into a stew. Uh, Also, I think, to be realistic, you have to consider the domestic political environment. Public servants and, you know, academics tend to say, well, you never consider politics. Well, the reality is, if the the conservatives are developing a defense policy, it's going to be different than the liberals or the NDP. So you put all that together in a stew, and then you start working your way way through the various elements. So, I mean, let's pick up on on one of those contextual points, the the fact that our our defense apparatus is thoroughly integrated with that of the United States, and we are beholden to some extent to them, and of course, to we have commitments to NATO. Uh, I mean, just how deep are we into that that apparatus, and, and can we imagine a defense policy that's somehow decoupled from that? Well, I think we're entirely interoperable with the United States Armed Forces. That's been one of the underpinnings of our military and defense policy for a very long time. Is it possible to imagine a relationship with the United States that does not have us engaged in two military commitments, NATO and NORAD? There are two big commitments. I think it's possible to to imagine that. But then you have to consider what are the downsides. The world is becoming a pretty complex place. Canada is, at best, a middle-middle power. (laughs) Uh, We don't have much cover right now from the U.S., um, any more than we had, you know, a while ago from Brits. So somewhere, somehow, we have to associate ourselves with either one state or a series of states. Coming back to my point about geography, I think the United States is the rational state with which to associate ourselves. Having said that, I'd argue 
our entire defense policy is not dependent on the United States. Our peacekeeping policy, for example, doesn't have to have anything to do with the states. And in fact, they don't do a lot of peacekeeping. And you could sort of develop a few examples like that. But to say that we can totally uh, cast asunder our military or defense relationship with the United States, I think is a bit fanciful. It would put us in an entirely different category. And I'm reminded of, you know, Trudeau-Père's comments, you know, we're the mouse in bed with the elephant. You have to be realistic about these things. And of course, I mean, we're going to have little skirmishes too. I mean, peaceful skirmishes too, for instance, in the Arctic, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit mm-hmm. later. So, I mean, there is some competition alongside that, that cooperation. Absolutely. But I mean, I also look around and say, I'm not sure who else we'd, we'd ally with. I mean, you mentioned our second neighbor is Russia. Uh, ideally, you partner with someone who shares your values, broadly speaking. <laughs> yeah, they're our neighbor. Uh, they're certainly not our ally. Um, I think in practical terms these days, we're talking about the European, Euro- European Union group maybe a few other countries like Australia, uh, Japan. But I think you absolutely, in a military context, have to share at least the majority of the values. It does not work if you don't share values. So in order for us to get anything done today, now that's overstating it, getting anything material done today, we need a collection of like-minded states in order to move the file forward. Does Does the United States always have to be in that grouping? I don't think so. Uh, but to, but it is unrealistic, I think, for Canada to say we can develop an isolationist policy. What about the the pushback that, as, as Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, said that NATO is suffering a brain death, hmm. that NATO has been in, in some duress for years as it tried to figure out in the aftermath of the Cold War what it was for, and the decline of American hegemony is a problem too. I mean, Trump, for instance, is not uh, the disease. He's the symptom of the disease. There's something much more sinister going on there. Uh, can we rely on those two major uh, institutions to last? And what, what happens if they change? I mean, what happens if someday the America doesn't look anything like it does today? Uh, I, you know, people, when I ask people this, they, they sort of shrug and say, well, that's that. <laughs> well, I think it, it's a good argument in favor of our being fleet of foot. You get together a group of countries to advance this particular policy, another group for another policy. Mm. Um, I I don't think the United States is ever going to change so fundamentally that they're going to become a strategic adversary. But, you know, we didn't go into the first Iraq war. They did. We irritated them a great deal, but in retrospect, we were correct. We didn't go to Vietnam. You know, we did a variety of things over the the years that have illustrated that we do not always march in sync with the United States. You know, Europe remains, I think, uh, an important part of the world. It has, you know, the second or the third largest economy. It has its own problems. My own belief is is that we expanded NATO and or the EU too quickly, and we didn't allow for sufficient integration, and some of the newer countries are having trouble to cope. On the other hand, we haven't exactly covered ourselves in glory in terms of the amount of military and other support that we've provided to the NATO command structure. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit later. I mean, I should sell, I should disclose that despite being a bleeding heart social democrat, I'm uh, in favor of military spending and expansion, uh, which earns me a lot of uh, a lot of kudos around the drum circles. But <laughs> uh, uh, what about climate? Does climate change the uh, well? Does climate change alter rather uh, the strategic calculation vis a vis the United States? Uh, you know, can we imagine an America that is you know strategically interested in in X, Y, or Z in such a way that, that puts us in direct confrontation, whether or not it's you know, water resources or passage in the north or whatever it might be. 
No, absolutely. I think one of the big worries of Canada in the next, I don't know, 50 years should be the United States draw or the United States interest in our water. I mean, if you follow a little bit what's going on in California, they're rapidly emptying their aquifers. You know, the Fraser River can only, and the Columbia River can only provide water for so long. Uh, can we, uh, should we one day to the next sort of say, you know, our water is your water, as in Mikasa Sukasa? I don't think so. But on the other hand, we have benefited significantly from being the neighbor of the United States over the decades. And it seems to me it's not unreasonable for us at some point to come to an agreement to share some of our resources, but to not do it lightly, to do it under our terms. But, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. We really have benefited in trade and military and in political perspective from the U our partnership with the U.S. You know, the old argument that, you know, you owe your friend something, I think, applies here. I mean, certainly we have no interest in, in seeing America decline into shambles. I mean, that's certainly not going to help our borders, for instance, or, or for that matter, our economy, given that, what is it, 80x percent of our trade mm -hmm. goes goes south. Okay, so but moving on from that then to, to various types of threats, I mean, what are we defending against, uh, broadly speaking? So we have threats, for instance, conventional war, cyber war, terrorism, uh, even potentially nuclear war. Given, as you mentioned, we have limited resources, what should we be focusing on? Well, I think this is where geography comes into play. You know, let's call a spade a shovel. You know, the, uh, the Russia is not about to send over the, the North Pole divisions invading uh, North America. It's just not going to happen. So, you know, a military land invasion, I think, is off, off, off the table. I think we have to worry about a significant number of cyber threats. We have to worry about... Uh, uh, missiles coming in, not just from Russia potentially, but from North Korea and a bunch of other states that could potentially go rogue, which brings to which brings to mind the necessity of developing early warning systems from the, from an air perspective, the renewal of NATO and of NORAD, I beg your pardon, and all sorts of other things. Um, so I would say that from the perspective of in Canada, the biggest concern is really uh, cyber and potentially attacks from the air. But that covers quite a wide range. We cannot, in and of ourselves, I don't think any country, including the United States, deal with all the cyber threats. We're going to either deal with them together or we're going to fail to deal with them. And in terms of the air threats, uh, the ICBM missile threats to North America, we clearly can't do it alone. And I guess I would argue this is going to be one of the bigger issues the, this current government is going to have to deal with. The United States have clearly indicated we need to rethink our early warning system, and they want us to participate. This is going to involve a great deal of money to the point where it might actually push other things off the defense budget. But I don't see how we can be taken seriously if we don't contribute to our air defense. And more generally, I think in the north, it's not so much or it's not entirely a question of deploying military forces there, although I think we need more than we have. It's establishing a presence that is that confirms our sovereignty. Mm -hmm. I think you're quite right when you say that climate changes will eventually mean both the north and the southern pathway through the north is going to open. If we don't have the kind of... of of uh, icebreakers that enable us to A, patrol the area, B, deal with crises, uh, we're going to have trouble maintaining our sovereignty. We don't have a lot of, you know, federal resources in that part of the world, partially because it's excruciatingly expensive. It's much, much more expensive. I can remember when I was in defense, we were talking about the allocation of monies for the military to have exercises. 
And the military always wanted to exercise up north, but it ate up, I think it was four times the budget for just a single exercise. You got to get them up there. And maintaining, you know, troops and equipment in minus 35 or 40 degree weather is really expensive. But if you don't do that, at least sometimes, and if you don't do it at least sometimes with your allies, your capacity to argue that you have effective control of that part of the world dissipates over time. Right. So you mentioned icebreakers, uh, which we, uh, is there an icebreaker gap? Oh, I absolutely <laughs> think so. I mean, China is uh, either has or is about to order two or three, uh, I think, nuclear icebreakers. The Russians have several. The United States doesn't have a great icebreaker capacity either. We have a number of quite old ones which are chugging along. Yeah, are these diesel? These old diesel? They are. They're all. We don't have any nuclear ones. And the military has just ordered these ice-resistant vessels for operating in the north, but they're not icebreakers. I think if we're going to be realistic uh, in terms of dealing with threats, not just military, but uh, economic and environmental in the north, we need a couple of very large, powerful icebreakers downside to that is they're excruciatingly expensive. Um, but if China, which is, you know, they call themselves a near-Arctic power, which I think is stretching it a bit, but we've <laughs> accepted that. So if they can construct a couple of massive icebreakers, given where they are, I find it difficult to believe that we can't, in looking at our northern policy overall, come to the conclusion we really do need a couple of very large and powerful icebreakers, not necessarily run by the military, but that would be used as a package of Canadian resources in the far north that the government could argue is maintaining and developing our sovereignty. What is it about this country that we resist spending money on the military? Mm. Uh, not all countries feel that way, including democracies. Uh, and yet we, including politicians who seem to be terrified of, of touching the subject. I, I've come up with one reason for this. I think it's because Canadians fundamentally don't feel threatened. Yeah. We have three oceans and we have the United States. So the average Canadian who does not think about this a lot, that's not a criticism, it's just a statement of reality, says to him or herself, okay, we need a military, a small one for you know, a small number of purposes, but you know, our current military budget is about $20 billion. To hit the NATO target of $2 billion, that would mean going to $40 billion. So the, an average Canadian would say, uh, mm, what are we defending against? We've got three oceans in the United States. So I think fundamentally, not just on defense, but on security generally, less so on cyber, people are beginning to understand, yeah. but they don't feel threatened. And if you don't feel threatened, politicians feel this um, and uh, resist spending money. The counter to that is when we do feel threatened, you know, our contributions to, for example, the Second World War were well beyond, you know, our per capita or engagement that might have been. We, we, we spent a lot of, of energy uh, after the Cold War, during the Cold War, maintaining an air division and a couple of other things in Europe. So if we really feel threatened, we deliver. But right now, it's hard to argue uh, that there's a great threat. I think that's a non-starter because you have to maintain your credibility on the planet. I think Russia and China in particular are really our strategic adversaries, and we need to think about what we're going to do to resist them. Not because they're going to invade us tomorrow, but because they want to create a world of the kind that I think most Canadians don't really want. And we can't just sit here piously say we don't like it. We have to do something about it. Again, going back to our earlier point, in concert with a whole raft of other countries. So this is where my support of, of 
national defense comes from, and including, and we'll talk about this in a second, uh, foreign intelligence. If you believe that this country is good or there's something good about it, if you believe that there's something uh, worth protecting, institutions, programs, form of government, whatever it may be, well, then you've got to protect it. You, you've got to be prepared to protect it when the sun is shining so that you can when it's uh, not. And uh, and yet, uh, so you mentioned Russia and, and China, and obviously the, the strategic long-term objective, especially of Russia, is to undermine the Western alliance and democracy. I like to joke that the Soviet Union has an extraordinarily good long game. Hmm. They sat and waited, and then they saw their moment, and 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 here we are. You know, especially given that uh, democracy is showing signs of strain, especially American democracy. So, so we ought to be able to defend that, not necessarily export it, but certainly defend it. And so, when we look at Russia and then we look at China, um, and we say, okay, th- those are the targets. Um, what is the strategy to defend? Uh, especially, let, let's tr- let's start on the cyber uh, war subject because that strikes me as the, the next front. I mean, people are looking at space in decades, but at the moment, the cyber threats seem to be the most clear and present danger. We have the communications security establishment. Um, what else? Well, I think we have to to be going back to my earlier point. We have to acknowledge there's a real threat. The threat is not just to governments; it's also a threat to the private sector, the economy and to individuals. I think there's ample evidence across the planet that these two countries are very, very keen, in particular in stealing IP, intellectual yeah. property. I think the United Nations estimates that about a trillion dollars a year in IP is stolen, not, not exclusively by these two countries, but a large chunk of it. I mean, a trillion dollars is a lot of money even for the United States. So we have to find a way of protecting this. You know, a current issue is what are we going to do as a country about Huawei? Yeah. Uh, I would argue... This is the 5G network. The 5G network and whether or not Huawei can participate in it. I would argue that Huawei is bound by Chinese law to support their security services and that the Chinese have demonstrated over time a considerable amount of aggressiveness in acquiring information, acquiring intelligence, and acquiring IP. We should not give them an open opportunity uh, to extract all of these things from our communications net. Now, the counter-argument argument is that well, they're not our enemy, and we have no evidence that they've done this in the past. Uh, the Brits, the United Kingdom today, has agreed to uh, allow Huawei into the outer edges of its uh, 5G network with a variety of controls limiting the percentage of participation, not allowing them near a certain number of sensitive sites. That may well work. I'm not a technical expert, but my point is, once Huawei is in, they're in. We'll never get rid of them. The Chinese are extraordinarily patient, and also, they're very, very good. Mm. So if all of the UK's devices and protections, which we might choose to emulate, work today, give the MSS five years and they'll find a way around them. So it seems to me that our government should not look at the Huawei threat today exclusively, but what it might be in five or ten years. The problem, of course, is that, you know, there are a whole raft of geopolitical considerations. This is going to annoy China. We have a number of our citizens there who are being held under not terribly good conditions. They can stop buying our goods. They can stop investing here. They can do a whole variety of things. But at some point, I hate the expression drawing a line in the sand, but at some point we have to come up with a a clear statement of what we're prepared to put up with and not put up with from other countries. I'd argue that the risk here is too great. Uh, 
And in fact, I, I would argue the government should have decided this a while ago before the election because it's not fair to the private sector. They have to make investment decisions that are being delayed, delayed, delayed. There are other companies that can provide 5G network stuff. They're often European companies. European countries. There are none in Canada. Gives rise to the question of why we can't have that domestic capacity. The stuff is more expensive, but I'm told that in most cases it's just as good. So if we're using that as an example of what we're going to do or have to do or should do with cyber, we have to acknowledge the threats there. It is going to cost us to defend ourselves. Uh, And, you know, part of our challenge, going back to one of your earlier questions, that if we don't really feel threatened or worried about something, we don't like spending the money. I think up to date, you know, the communication security establishment and other groups in the federal government have done a you know pretty good job in protecting federal assets. Um, but everything is linked to everything else, uh, and the assets of the provinces and of the and of the private sector are no less important. And we need to worry about them holistically as well. I would argue. Do we even have a choice on five G? I mean, the Americans have said no. Isn't that? effectively the end game because because they also said that they and there's a bill right now in congress that they're not quite they're hesitant to share information with five eyes countries who uh, who use huawei and their 5g network and, and of course australia new zealand have already said no who knows what's going to happen with them in the, in the united kingdom but it strikes me that we know where this is going but we just don't want to say it You could be right. I mean, I think the reaction of the United States is one of the geopolitical issues that the cabinet has to look at. Um, I'd argue that our situation is different from that of the United Kingdom. I mean, with with the Internet, everything's interoperable with anything else. But in North America, our interoperability of our communication systems with the United States, you know, is almost total. So if we should decide to go and allow Huawei into our 5G network, we are, in fact, from the perspective of the United States, directly endangering their national security, Uh, not so much in terms of sharing, but because of the interoperability issue. Would the United States, you know, overnight say to Canada, we're not going to share any intelligence with you? I don't think so. If there was a a threat intelligence, you know, that would affect us, I think they'd give it to us. But longer term, more strategic stuff, would they slowly cut back? I think it's within the realm of the possible. You know what could what could the government of Canada do in terms in terms of protecting the five G uh, in terms of protecting the Five Eyes network? You know we could build an absolutely independent standalone communication network that allows us to communicate intelligence with the United States and the other Five Eyes, and within the federal government. It's possible to do. It's expensive. It's technically difficult. But that would be one way of saying, you know, we acknowledge that there's an issue here, and we're going to protect your information by building this standalone network. It's been done in the past in various circumstances between various countries, so it's doable. But, you know, um, uh, Huawei's spokesperson has been arguing that, you know, good for the UK for not uh, standing up, for standing up uh, to, the, uh, to the United States. But I think the same argument applies to standing up to China. Mm-hmm. We have to pursue our national interest as we see it, and our national interest, at least to a considerable degree, involves taking into account the fact that we're geographically next door to the United States and whether everybody in this country agrees to it or not, with it or not, they're our best ally. Yes. Well, it also strikes me that, um, you know, you spoke earlier of drawing a line. I mean, I, a country that kidnaps Canadians isn't exactly someone, a country that you can trust, I don't think. No, and they're in, they are, uh, 
you know, I have difficulty talking about China because, you know, they are not the worst thing since the Black Plague and they're not the best thing since sliced bread, to use very old-fashioned expressions. <laughs> but they've detained Canadians. They treat a large chunk of their own population very poorly. They're not a democracy. They violate human rights. They're extraordinarily pushy with their neighbors in the South China Seas and in Asia generally. Uh, they have a view of themselves which is that they would like to be the predominant power on this planet by, I think it's 2050 is the date they've picked. I can understand national ambition, uh, but on the other hand, the, the, the model they have for this planet is not one that I think most Canadians share. Now, we have a problem right now, with, I would argue, with democracies. We're not all doing so well. Mm -hmm. We've got the United States. The UK is going through a tough time with Brexit. Germany can't seem to get over the post-Merkel period. There are a significant number of EU and NATO states that are sort of tending towards the right side of the spectrum. You know, Italy has accepted loans from China. Greece has accepted Chinese facilities. So the West isn't exactly covering itself in glory. So I think one of the things we could do, rather more than we're doing now, is try and rally the West. Uh, but fundamentally, I think we have to look at our own interest you know, political, economic, military, and that has to include a consideration of the United States. And if we decide to bar Huawei, I don't think it's exclusively because of the United States. It's because it's not in our national interest as well. But accepting Huawei equipment would be to some degree, I think, accepting that we're not prepared to take the risk of what China is going to do to us. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I mean, xenophobia is is a thing, but I think that's that is a different thing than saying this is a country that um, has uh, digital totalitarian ambitions within its own borders with their social credit rating system. Uh, the human rights atrocities with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang is, uh, you know, if that was anywhere else in the world, no one would tolerate it. And the fact that Canadians could even consider doing business with a country like that. Uh, I mean, utterly, utterly astounds me. And on, and on top of it, I mean, I, I think the West has no backbone on this because, to take us a little off course, if you look at the Chinese Belt and Road Program, uh, it is one of, I think, the, the smartest strategic geopolitical plays uh, in the modern era. They are building the infrastructure and building these loan programs and bringing countries into their orbit. And our response to it has been utterly anemic. I mean, we have a sort of loan program that's sort of a, a fraction of what they're doing. Yeah, I think the Chinese have some, two things that we don't have, we in the West. One, they have a strategy for where they want to go, and two, they have more money than they know what they want to do with. Right. And when the United States, uh, I'm exaggerating to make my point, but when they've basically withdrawn, uh, not just from strategic leadership, but from you know the spending of monies in order to advance their interest, they left the door wide open for China. Having said that, I think, we have to be realistic. I wasn't joking when I said that China is not, you know, the worst thing since the Black Plague. There are a variety of things we can do with China. You know, we can work on humanitarian aid. We can do some scientific research. We can work on search and rescue. We can do peacekeeping. Uh, we're not going to, I think, advance, you know, a peace, order, and good government on the planet by totally ostracizing China. But I think we have to make clear uh, we don't like the way they see the world developing. And we need to make sure that we have a large number of countries that agree with us and to try and push back. I don't think anybody wants war. Don't get me no. wrong. But, you know, a great deal of grief can be manufactured far short of war. So does this defense plan vis-a-vis -vis China include renewed support for Taiwan and, for that matter, for Hong Kong? I mean, how do we approach something like that? Well, I think Taiwan and Hong Kong are 
apples and oranges. I mean, the world has acknowledged that Hong Kong is part of China. There's the two, you know, the two systems, one country. They're not, it seems, they're not, it seems to me, honoring their commitment to maintain the two systems, but they're viewed by the world as part of China uh, in a way that is not the case with Taiwan. Um, But I think that, you know, if we believe in democracy, uh, we have to have some measure of support for Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also another argument to be made. You know, the Chinese government argues that, you know, Taiwan has been part of the Chinese empire since time immemorial. I'm not a Chinese scholar, but I have been told that is not the case. <laughs> uh, and yes, Taiwan has been part of the Chinese empire. It's come and it's gone. But it's not in, in, in history and in international law a shut, a close, what's the expression? An open and closed case yeah. that they have always been part of China. So I don't think they have a compelling case. Should we go to war? Uh, should the United States go to war if the Chinese fleet goes across the straits and, invi- and invades um, Taiwan? I think serious thought should be given to that because if we don't do something, if, that, if it comes to that, we will be effectively saying to China, uh, they can do anything they want anywhere because there is a very, very clear treaty between the United States and China and Taiwan rather about the United States obligation to protect Taiwan. Mm-hmm. We're not included in that, but if we're not part of a broader partnership that tries to advance the interest of Taiwan, but I don't mean by that standing up and beating our chest and saying, you know, Taiwan is independent. You know, they're never part of China. We just want to irritate China. Yeah. I think we can do it quietly. I think we can do it effectively. My understanding is there's a debate right now as to whether or not Taiwan should be a member of ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization. The world seems to be of the view that Taiwan should not be in political institutions. For example, mm. it shouldn't be in the General Assembly. Why, why the world would not have Taiwan part of ICAO or WHO, which are technical agencies meant to advance civil aviation and health on the planet, escapes me entirely. But China seems to view these as totally unacceptable moves in, in, in the direction of the world recognizing China, uh, Taiwan as a, as a sovereign, separate sovereign strait. I tend not to agree. But I, so again, I come back to the point, we've got to engage with China to the extent we can. We need to try and advance Taiwan's interest without unnecessarily irritating or causing China to, to counter-react. It's, it's probably worth reminding those who advance the, the theory that Taiwan has always been a part of the Chinese empire, that, that parts of China... Um, have long been a part of the Mongolian Empire. Hmm. Maybe they'd like to make a trade. Uh, I have a feeling that they wouldn't. But okay, so well, moving along to something well related, but 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 separate. We have for a very long time talked about whether or not Canada needs a foreign intelligence service, a standalone agency that can uh, operate uh, offensive human intelligence gathering operations on foreign soil. Uh, CSIS can't do that. Um, the communication security establishment, there are limits to what they're allowed to collect as well. Uh, there are, I suppose, historical reasons why we didn't develop one in the post-war era. Um, do we need one now? It's a, it's a tough question to answer because I would argue if we had one today, we should keep it and make sure it's a good one. Not having one, one of the things, we, we looked at this a fair bit when I was in CSIS. CSIS does operate abroad, but for security intelligence purposes, not for foreign intelligence purposes. But the skill sets that's required abroad and and domestically are somewhat different. Um, Having a good foreign intelligence service is an extremely expensive proposition. 
Uh, I don't think there's any prospect of our having one that could operate worldwide. The Australians, for example, have ACES, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, and they've basically said to themselves, we're only going to operate in our neck of the woods. So my question then would become, if we had one, where would we want them to operate? Mm -hmm. I think to be realistic, I don't think we'd be particularly good at operating against China and Russia. I mean, th that's really a very, very complicated thing to do. Um, are we going to spy against our allies in Europe, uh, against the Five Eyes? There's always the Caribbean and whatnot. So I'm not trying to avoid the question. I'm just saying that in deciding whether or not we ever create one, there are a range of issues, including what do we want our foreign intelligence service to do? There are two models, as you well know. One is they just collect information. The second one is they intervene abroad, the James Bond model. Not that I think we should ever be the James Bond model. But, you know, uh, a lot of intelligence services do both. They, they intervene abroad in pursuit of that, their state's interest. Others just collect intelligence. Just collecting intelligence would mean that in some circumstances we'd have to take the intelligence, give it to somebody else, and have them act. So I guess I come down without, you know, having, you know, written a master's thesis on it, saying that we should develop within CSIS the capacity to collect some foreign intelligence um, and see how that goes. Does that require legislative change? Well, as I said, they can operate abroad in pursuit of Canada's national security, yeah. but they, can, they cannot operate abroad in order to acquire foreign intelligence. So that's a big step. But to, to allow them to operate, you know, to any purpose abroad, it would require legislative change. And I wonder if Canadians would be hesitant uh, to allow that to go forward. Again, for the reason that you mentioned earlier, we don't feel threatened. I think they would be hesitant, uh, which is why I think uh, most governments would not be prepared to spend the political capital. I mean, it's taken a long time for the gov governments, not just Mr. Trudeau or Mr. Harper, but governments to broaden CSIS's mandate and to broaden CSEC's mandate in order to allow them a, you know, uh, a mod modestly um, offensive capability. And this has happened only after the government has gone through a lot of reflection and a lot of convincing people that there's a real threat out there. So I'm with you. I think it would take a lot. It would take a specific threat, demonstrable threat against Canada, I think, for a consensus to emerge to allow the government to move forward on this. And it would require the expenditure of a fair bit of political capital. What about uh, extending... Um cyber, uh, offensive cyber operations, uh, you know, you, arguably you, that would be an easier case to make, especially with all the chatter about digital threats to democracy, digital threats to elections, some stuff that I've done a, a work on myself. And people will grasp that, I think, more and more. Um, you know, could we look at signals intelligence and say maybe there's something there? I think there is, and I think the latest set of amendments uh, that the last parliament approved does allow CSEC in order to do some of this. I mean, part of the challenge is you have defensive SIGINT, you have what I call offensive defensive in the sense that you only intervene you know, in order to defend yourself directly, and then you have really offensive of the type, for example, that the Russians used against Ukraine. We clearly are in the first two now, and my understanding is that there's the capacity or the capability with a variety of checks and balances written in to allow CSEC to do this. Whether they're doing it now or not, I don't know, because I'd retired by then. <laughs> but I'm with you. On the cyber side, it would be much easier. It's less dangerous. And I think in the end, it's rather less expensive. Yeah, because it seems to me that there are opportunities. I mean, I think of, for instance, the United States uh, effectively attacking Iran to shut down its nuclear capabilities uh, digitally. 
which to me, I mean, look, it's still an offensive operation, uh, certainly le- less intrusive than dropping um, bunker busters. This is true. <laughs> uh, and arguably the world would be more inclined to say, well, that's reasonable enough. I mean, it, it certainly doesn't cause a loss of human life or even uh, it, it disrupts uh, offensive programs. So. Yeah, and, the, and I believe the argument in international law is that the United States is enabled to do this as, as in self-defense. Yeah, that's the argument. So the question I would ask myself, if I were, you know, if I were the king of the castle, which I will never be, is okay. We want to give CSEC the capacity to do all this sort of stuff. What are we going to ask them to do? Where would Canada's national interest be advanced? It ain't going to be, I'd argue, unless we're very lucky against Russia and China, because they're very good. We're quite enough. We're quite preoccupied on the defensive side with them. Um, would it be in terms of trying to deal with what I would call, you know, vaguely rogue states, you know, uh, North Korea, Iran, there are a couple of others that are really problematic, possibly. Could we use offensive operations in any, in any place where the Canadian forces are operating? I would say yes. But I would argue there's not, an in, not intuitively a really long list of places where we'd want to operate except as part of a division of labor within, say, the five eyes. Right. Where we might argue that you know the Australia worries about one part of the world, we argue we would maintain uh, coverage over another part. So l- let's end on this. Uh, this is something I've wanted to talk about the entire time, but of course it is the thorniest of thorny issues: procurement. Mm. There's something about this country that we have an awful time uh, buying things. I mean, as individual consumers, we're very, very good at it. Uh, as a country, we seem to be less good at it. What is it with this country and military procurement? Why can't we buy things? Yeah, it's interesting you ask that, because when I was Deputy Minister of Defense, the one item that caused me periodically, figuratively speaking, to go home at night and hit my head against the wall was procurement, because it was excruciatingly um, frustrating. So a couple of things. Um, One, we're not the only country that has problems with defense procurement. Whenever billions of dollars are involved, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. We do seem to have more trouble than a a number of other countries. I think there are two big problems with it now. One is the multiplicity of policy objectives that we've brought to bear on defense procurement. Because we're not only required to procure, which is the requirement, we want to do regional development, Mm -hmm. we want to do industrial development, and of late we want to do innovation as well and probably a couple of other policies that I'm not mentioning. And they be, they become very, very often in conflict with one another. You know, the decision on the part of successive governments, plural, to develop uh, in Canada industrial capacity to, to procure some of our defense need, it's not irrational at all. I mean, it really isn't. But, you know, we could probably buy naval vessels, you know, a turnkey naval vessel idea, from any number of states for far less, acquire them far quickly. But, you know, the national shipbuilding policy says that we want to support a shipbuilding capacity on on our two oceans. You know, we want to develop uh, industrial cap- capability in the heartland. Uh, we want to promote innovation and whatnot. So that's one area. It's the multiplicity of policy objectives that are, that are brought to bear. The second one, I call it culture. Um, you know, the politicians blame the bureaucrats, the bureaucrats blame the military, and back and forth again. But my observation would be is that all of the institutions involved in defense procurement have become too risk-averse. Hmm. Um, you know, Public Services Canada, um, you know, they, ha- they have the, the, requ- the responsibility of signing on the dotted line, you know, if we're going to buy this, that, or the other thing. 
They don't like being challenged before the Canadian International Trade Tribunal. They don't like being challenged before the federal court. And they have become, I think, overly risk-averse. Uh, the Treasury Board, which has to oversee all of this, is in similar fashion. You know, they don't want, you know, uh, they want everything organized in minute detail. Uh, they don't want anybody to take a risk that they can't. They want to make sure that every government department that's possibly involved is involved. The military, for their part, you know, not unreasonably, if you're a senior military person, you want the best equipment you can mm -hmm. because you want to protect your men and women in uniform. Fine. But that should not mean that in every single case you get a Cadillac when a really good Lincoln or Ford will do. It's a stupid analogy, but you'll get what I mean. So D&D has now put into place an internal review process that looks at the military's uh, uh, military procurement requirements to make sure that the outside world won't sort of say, oh, for God's sakes, you know, this is totally outrageous. But everybody is so cautious. Uh, you know, ministers don't want to take the risk of being caught out. Uh, there are political uh, considerations as well. So I would argue that we've developed a military procurement culture in this country that is overly bureaucratized and overly risk-averse. If you add that to this multiplicity of objectives, which successive governments have asked you know, the military and D&D &D to put into place before they buy anything, it means it's very hard to move ahead. We do get what we need. It's excruciatingly slow. I mean, during uh, the Afghan war, uh, you know, the military asked for and did receive a variety of equipments in fairly short order. It took a while for the system to recognize that we were at war and we needed to do it. But, you know, the, to give you an example, um, the Canadian Air Force wants uh, strategic airlift, C-17s, those huge planes. They're only really available in one place outside of Russia. Um, so we basically wrote a large check, uh, and we acquired them from the United States. There's a special arrangements with the United States to procure things. And yes, there were some arrangements that, you know, per, you know, some expenditures would remain in Canada or whatnot. But I can remember when I was there, there was the possibility of buying an additional uh, C-17, which is tens of millions of dollars. A decent case, I think, was made to the government, and it was bought. Period. Mm. Uh, if we did that more often, you know, all of the controversy concerning the um, the temporary or the restricted use uh, uh, supply ship for the Navy, the Asterix, um, you know, the, the Mr. Harper's government basically accepted the military's view that they needed a supply ship. They waived a whole raft of regulations. And despite everybody grumbling about everything, the ship was built. It's now being used very effectively by the Navy and also in supplying Allied navies. Now, we had the Mark Norman cabinet, mm -hmm. uh, which I thought was a the whole thing was handled very poorly by everybody. But when we make up our minds that we want to do it, we can. But I think it requires both the bureaucracy and the government to expend capital. I don't mean physical capital. I mean small and large P political capital. And that's not something they want to do all the time. Oof, I don't know. I feel better or worse now. <laughs> I mean, we, I mean, because I just mentioned we can get things done. And I mean, obviously, you know, I, I think your point about the the clear and present danger is absolutely central to all of this. That if there was a clear and present danger, if there was an immediate threat, we could mobilize. We get on. With it. We really do get on with it. We do. 
Um, one of the good bits of good news, though, I think, in on the military procurement front, it started under Mr. Harper's government, and I believe it's been continued by Mr. Trudeau's, is they've increased the level of procurement that can be affected by D&D alone. Hmm. In other words, they don't have to go to public services. There's less of a requirement to go to um, the Treasury Board. And I think over 80% of the military's purchases can now be made by D&D alone. That's very good news. I have the, I developed in my, my little brain this model that if, if one department required time factor one, two departments required time factor three, three departments required time factor six, four departments required time factor ten. So to the extent that you can reduce the involvements of other departments substantively, you speed things up a great deal. So on this 80% or so of defense procurement, and it may be higher now, D&D still has to buy all, respect all the rules. This isn't a throw away the rule books, but it means that it does, it implements the rules. It doesn't need a half dozen other mm. departments to do it for them. I think that's very good news. But that does that does leave the mega procurements, the the fighters, uh, the, uh, the, the, the destroyers and the frigates, the huge tanks. They still go through the whole system. And I must say, that's not a bad thing, because when you're spending that amount of the taxpayers' money, you need some checks and balances. But then I come back to my argument of multiplicity of policy objectives and the culture, which could be dealt with, but it would require a government that's prepared to, a th- to spend a fair bit of political capital, a minister who's very keen, and a number of senior officials who are prepared to say, we are going to do this and we're going to get on with it. That requires, in an environment where everybody's overworked, everybody has too many problems to solve, a great deal of optimism to expect that it will happen. And money. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so Sadly, that takes us to time. I could talk about this all day and share. I, I didn't bring up the question of, of nuclear armament, but I want to let that just linger in everyone's mind for a second of something that could have been talked about but wasn't. They, they dodged uh, the bullet there. Maybe I did. Uh, but thank you very much for joining me uh, here today. My pleasure. Uh, my thanks to Mira Ahmad, as always, for producing this and to each and every one of you uh, for listening. And now I'm sure each and every one of you is a stalwart supporter of a robust Canadian defense program. And you can write your member of parliament and let him or her know that uh, right now. Thanks again, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>